0: This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey guys, welcome back to the show in this very special episode with the great Brian Cox, whose brilliant portrayal of Logan Roy on Succession has kept us spellbound for two seasons now. I was thrilled for this opportunity to talk to him at length about his acting, his background, and of course, Logan Roy, who he jokingly calls his evil twin. Brian Cox was surprised when writer and Succession creator Jesse Armstrong told him that after many aired episodes of Succession, they were changing Logan Roy's birthplace from Quebec, Canada to Dundee, Scotland. Cox was surprised because that's where he's from, So there are a few more interesting parallels between the two self-made men from Dundee that we get into in the interview, but mostly they end there. Brian Cox is a prolific actor of the stage and screen. His theater work is immense. He worked at the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theater in the UK, and he won an Olivier in 1988 for Titus Andronicus. On television, he starred in David Milch's Deadwood and Nuremberg, for which he won an Emmy playing Herman Göring. His film roles are plentiful, from Braveheart to Born Identity and so much in between. And for me and many others, it's some of the smaller roles he's had that he has made completely unforgettable. Remember the headmaster in Wes Anderson's Rushmore? Or Cox as Edward Norton's father in Spike Lee's 25th Hour? and the real-life screenwriting guru Robert McKee in Spike Jones adaptation. And of course, he played Hannibal Lecter in Michael Mann's Manhunter. And now, with Logan Roy, he's blown us all away. Cox strikes a fantastic balance with this portrayal. He's at the same time cruel, mysterious, all-knowing, vulnerable, and absolutely one of the most fascinating characters to come up in TV in recent history. Cox and I spoke from his cabin outside of New York City, where he's been staying with his family during the pandemic. Now, there are spoilers and deep dives ahead, people. Cox and I talk about the nitty-gritty of Succession, his thoughts on Logan's motivations, relationship with his kids and his wife, which I've been very curious about, the incredibly committed group of actors and crew on the show, season three, and of course, many other aspects of Cox's career and commitment to his craft. But first, here are the Roys in all their glory.
1: Thank you all for making it. We're going to be the number one media conglomerate in the world. The key here is act like a happy family. We're the Osbuns, and I'm daddy fucking Warbucks, okay? Good, fine. Nobody here has any glaring substance abuse issues that almost brought down the company, right?
0: (laughs) How are things between you and
1: your dad? Um, pretty good. He looks demented. Why is he so shiny? I always wanted one of you kids to take over. People would do well to remember there's gonna be a new sheriff in town.
0: Well, he asked me to run the company. I'm kidding. Am I?
1: You should. Hey. Your sister's just in for the day. Just to observe. Observe what? Can I suggest you look for some downtime? <clears throat> dad, you okay? maybe you should sir you're old i do what i want we are going after fears us trying to bite the most respected name in news we're gonna fucking eat them up delicious let's bag this elephant let's bone this turkey welcome to our funny little house you have an interesting family i have an offer Watching you people melt down is the most deeply satisfying activity on planet Earth. We aim to please. Everybody, stay in your lane. Stop! Security! Back off! This is executive level business! We're coming up to the finishing line. Cut the horseshit. Know your role. And remember Money wins. Here's to us.
0: Are you safe and well?
1: Yeah, we are. We are uh, upstate New York. Uh, and I have a house up here. We have a house up here, uh, which my wife found, which is fantastic, and I've really been enjoying it. So I'm away from the throng, and uh, and in fact, there's there's been quite a bit of um, our COVID has Really, quite down here. So there's been a little bit more of um, people going to restaurants, social distances, wearing masks. So it's actually been quite, it's been quite healthy. Actually, uh, I feel very good on it. You know, I went to New York because my son had a graduation, so I went to New York, and it was fine. But it was just a little strange going back to New York.
0: So I'm going to get started because I have so many things I want to ask you. But first of all, Mr. Cox, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. I'm, first of all, I'm going to admit that I've been stealing a line of yours. Some time ago, I read an interview with you and I don't remember where it was, but happily in passing, you said, I think the human experiment is extremely disappointing. And I've been using that a lot. And now when I get this incredible chance to talk to you, we're in the middle of a pandemic, all this upheaval. And I'm wondering if you're more or less disappointed in the human experiments. No,
1: I think my disappointment is being confirmed daily, especially (laughs) in this country. Uh, The craziness of people. You know, uh, Tom Hanks did a very nice thing yesterday and Tom was a very gentle and good man he's a truly good man and uh he did this thing he said i don't understand why people don't wear masks can't they understand it's they'll die (laughs) you know and uh it is astonishing the way people behave and and in and you know and all about their civil rights you know and i always thought civil rights meant civil rights which was rights to the civil population and not Mm -hmm. necessarily rights to the individual you know i mean the individual had to think of others and i think this is where we're you know, this country has become very unstuck and that, and of course, led by uh, an ignoramus president doesn't help.
0: But I hopefully we'll find that the human experiments among sort of individuals and among the general well, population that's, that's,
1: is that <laughs> the, that's, the, that's the great thing about um, human beings is they're constantly surprising. Um, you know, that's what why I, I'm still an optimist, even though it's a disappointing you experiment. Are. Yeah, I'm very much an optimist, but they, it's they are surprising as a, as a group, the behavior is sometimes extraordinary and then sometimes quite the opposite. I mean, that's a very confused, you know, we, we, you know, it it really, it really, I think it really is important to understand where we are on the evolutionary scale and we're not particularly high up on the evolutionary scale. You know, we are just, we're just, the evolutionary scale is that, We're still about there.
0: Um, Do you think Logan um, was disappointed in the human experiment or he's just happy playing the game?
1: Well, he plays the game, but I think deep down he is, you know, by just his background and the things which we have not revealed about him and the things that have been hinted at and his beatings and his situation with his sister and the situation with his brother and the situation with his late mother. I think he is probably profoundly disappointed in the human experiment and he's just given up on it. I haven't given up. That's my thing. I haven't given up because I, oh, I'm i happy to hear that. No, no, I haven't given up at all. But Logan, I think, has, you know, I think he has. And I think that that's in a way his tragedy is that he is, he's lost faith in a way. He's a man who's lost faith. And then, of course, his children are now supreme disappointment to him, but he loves his children. He loves his children very deeply. Jesse Armstrong, very carefully, because I kept thinking, does this guy love his kids? And he said, oh, he really loves his kids. And when you understand that, you realize that the kids have got A, a lot to live up to, but they are in a situation which is, it's not unlike a lot of situations with with people who become successful and their children inherit that and they don't, you know, they're, they're, they're used to a certain kind of lifestyle. And, of course, the lifestyle of the Logan Roy family is kind of ridiculous to almost being obscene.
0: He's a self-made man, and his children are born into wealth. And he...
1: That's right. And I think that's the important difference. And it was very clear when I talked to Jesse first time around, because he'd done this thing about, about Rupert Murdoch, and uh, which he had actually was a thing that Frank Rich read and liked, and sort of there was that was where the pitch for the show came out of. But of course, unlike Rupert Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch inherited something. He didn't ever, he never started with a a blank sheet of paper and Logan did more or less start with a blank sheet of paper so it's a it's a different dynamic really. Well
0: I'm going to get back to the intricacies of Logan but first I want to ask on stage and film you've worked with material like no other geniuses that have captured a certain time I'm talking about you've played Shakespeare, O'Neill, Stoppard, uh, Charlie Kaufman, Spike Lee. Jesse Armstrong, as a writer and creator, what does he bring to our moment?
1: Astonishing kind of um, accuracy and wit and humor. And he's very modest, incredibly modest, Jesse. And he runs the writer's room like, you know, I suppose the only equivalent. That, well, actually, there's probably a few governance and David Chase and and the the guy who I think is the the genius of them all is David Milch and uh, I think Jesse is very much on that line but he hasn't got the I don't know David Chase I don't know Stephen Bochco but I know David Milch
0: you were in Deadwood yeah Yeah,
1: and I know David Milch has had his demons you know Jesse doesn't seem to have that I mean he's very circumspect very quiet um, goes jogging and uh, he's a <laughs> healthy fella he always does his jog uh, and he just writes like a dream you know uh, it, it, and, uh and of course the other person who to hand that to is amando nucci who really started jesse on his way uh to become well no jesse started before that but then and Ando brought him on amando brought him on board with the, the thick of it which is a genius series about British politics in the well the early 2000s and uh, it's really extraordinary piece of work and he was one of the key writers on that.
0: How uh, refreshing to talk about a genius without demons.
1: Yeah that's not
0: often. No no, he
1: he, he is I mean he would balk at the idea Jesse would balk at the idea of thinking of himself as a genius I mean that's uh, he probably thinks that's too much responsibility for a young man like him. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, I would, I, I figure that he, he doesn't see himself in that light, but we do because we work so close to him and we see the work that comes off the page. And we did, we always shot relatively, which is it's going to have to ha- probably change a little bit though. They, they still want to do it. So it, logistically it's going to be hard in the pleasant climate, but they, they shoot and, and they write in chronicle, chronological order. So it's all, we, each episode comes up and, and we you know we deal with it
0: but someone who, who seems to have a bit more uh, sort of artistic uh, demons is Jeremy Strong he was on my show uh, a while ago and we were talking about the last scene of the first season when Logan is confronting Kendall about the accident and the passenger that died which is so brilliantly played by the both of you
1: what have you had your entire life that I didn't give you I blame myself I spoiled you And now, you're fucked. What the yes. fuck are you doing?
0: How am I going to tell you something?
1: This is about the future. This is about our future. This could be the defining moment of your life.
0: But he was telling me that that, that last episode and those scenes took so much out of him, sort of method acting-wise, that he almost considered not acting anymore. And I was wondering if you saw this happening with Jeremy.
1: yeah. I just used to tell Jeremy, take it easy. My mother used to say to me, oh, Brian, didn't I get so upset? It's only a play, you know. I mean, and I'm afraid that's an adage which I carry with me. I, I mean, I have total respect for Jeremy. I, I really do. I have <laughs> total respect for him. But his method is his method. And I think it gets him into a lot of, it gives him a lot of pain. I think unnecessarily um because it's only pretending after all i mean that's what we do you know and the more free you are of pain and this is what i keep trying to say to him the more free you are of pain the greater your range as an actor Mm -hmm. because then you you're able to kind of inhabit you know pain is just one area but there's joy there's so many other stuff there's you know there's optimism there's pessimism there's all these other uh, paradoxes which you have to you have to switch from as an actor, and that's part of what you do as an actor. And uh, you learn that in the theatre. You learn that by playing in repertoire. If you're playing in repertoire and you're working, you know, a different play. If you're playing one night, you're playing Titus Andronicus. The next night, you're playing Vashinen in *The Three, S- Three Sisters*. The next night, you're playing uh, Petruchio in uh, *Taming of the Shrew*. You know. I, 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 so you've got to switch. You have to learn to switch, and your commitment is no less. You know, your commitment is still as considerable as it ever was, and always will be. But that the, the, you have to have that pliability. You have to have, and 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 Jeremy's relatively young. Even Daniel Day Lewis has finally admitted that perhaps he went a little overboard. And of course, Jeremy <laughs> did spend the time as Daniel Day Lewis's assistant. So,
0: who oh, did he really?
1: Oh yes. Oh yes. Well, that's where this is from. uh, Well, partly, partly, you know, but it's, you know, it's the way it is. I mean, it is the way it is. And, uh, you know, nevertheless, he does deliver the goods. That's the thing. Oh, yes. Cannot cannot deny about Jeremy, that he actually does deliver the goods. I just think he can deliver the goods and it doesn't cost as much as he thinks it does. As they say it's only acting,
0: <laughs> right? Wasn't it Olivier who said that, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: he said that to Dustin Hoffman. And of course, it's it's the disease of America, I think, American acting, uh, and I've witnessed it. I'm, um, you know, I'm a little bit of a historian on on how groups have developed, and there was a famous group theater called the Group Theater which was a, a, a group of, you know, quite radical individuals in, in the Herbert Berghoff, uh, Eli Kazan, uh, Lee Strasberg, um, Uta Hagen, uh, Stella Adler. Uh, they were all part of this. And, you know, and they were great, great Stanley, uh, Stanislavski affectionados. Strasberg was quite, Strasberg was quite rigid, rigid about it. And Stella Adler, being a bit of a seeker, decided to take herself to Paris and try to meet Stanislavski, which she did. And Stanislavski informed her, because uh, she, she asked her questions about the method, or he never called it the method. He called it the system or something. And, was, and she said, and what about emotional memory? And Stanislavski said, oh, I dropped that years ago. He said, it just got in the way. I said, it interfered with the imagination. So I, I got rid of that. So that was a revelation because that was the whole basis of that sort of intensity of America. <laughs> she came back and they had a big meeting of the group. They were all there to Kazan, I think was there as well. So they were all there. And uh, she's, she said, you know, uh, I saw the master and He said, Oh, great. I said, yeah. And uh, he's, he questions now the whole notion of emotional memory. He says it's he found it got in the way. And Strasbourg very clearly, very succinctly said, Well, he's wrong. Stanislavski is wrong. Now, this is ironic because it was the Stanislavski method that they were looking at. And then finally, and this has been the hangover.
0: Well, they can't just say, We're not doing this anymore after right. doing
1: it. <laughs> exactly. And, it's and a bit they had, and it, split the, it split the group theater up. I mean, and, uh, but and he became quite sensational in the wake of what was particularly Brando's performance in Streetcar Named Desire. So it was It was really interesting to see how he had a hold on the kind of the emotional memory and how he used it. So you get people like Al Pacino, uh, Paul Newman was there, and so many people were part of that group. They were all great kind of defenders of that method. But it has its problems when it comes to... The, 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 the variation of acting, the the, the gradation of acting, it, you know, and acting is a very, very delicate thing. It's, it's really delicate, um, you know, and it needs a certain amount of rigor, but it's not a religious experience. And when it becomes a religious experience, it becomes something else.
0: But are there any other ways that, how could I say, that you've suffered for your art?
1: No, I've been very lucky. I haven't, I mean, I've only suffered if I've been unemployed and to be honest with you, touch wood, I haven't been unemployed too often, you know, even during this, even during this present crisis, I'm still doing a lot of, well, this kind of thing and voiceovers and I'm trying to write a bit, which I'm having difficulty with. And uh, so I'm, it's, no, it's, it's been really rather interesting. Actually it's been a rather interesting time. So I've been very lucky. I don't, I don't see, you know, I, I've had great mentors. I've had great teachers along the way, great disciplinarians, people like Lindsay Anderson, uh, Michael Elliott, this wonderful theatre director. And then I had a personal friend of mine, a wonderful Scottish actor who's been dead quite a while now, and he, he was called Fulton Mackay. And he was he was the one who, you know, when I was being very ambitious as a young man, he, he gave me the best advice ever. He said, oh, Brian, Brian, you are Scottish. Scots have always got a way of getting to the, the, the nub of something. He said, Brian, 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 you're always worried about being a star. Don't be a star, just be a good actor. Say your prayers and be a good actor. And it was the best advice he ever gave me.
0: Um, going back to, to the show, we were talking about Logan's disappointment and what we think about. Do you think he sees Kendall's addiction as weakness?
1: I, I th- well, he, he certainly sees it as a form of weakness, certainly. But he also mm-hmm. does understand that it's all-consuming. And it's very hard to do... You know, it's very hard if you have a child who is going along a particular road and anything you do to, you know, create a detour could always come amiss in some way or other. And so sometimes it's best just to back off. And I think Logan's problem is he's backed off and, uh, you know, and and Kendall has emerged because of being, probably being spoiled, really. And uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tragic parent child relationship. You know, n- nobody's exempt in that way. We, you know, we all have difficulty bringing up to, I mean, I'm, I'm confessedly not the greatest father because I never had a father. So I find it very difficult. And the idea of fatherhood is, is something mythological about fathers, you know, in my life. So I find that really tricky. You know, and, I, and of course it's my poor children, they suffer from it as well because I'm not very strong in that area. My wife is I mean she has a natural bent, but I am not strong in that area
0: But how do you mean that you have don't set boundaries or or, or, or? yeah,
1: I, I, yeah. I, I, I don't understand the meaning of boundaries. I understand them in terms of myself, but I just I'm very bad at it very very
0: okay so but that means that you're a very nice father that you're letting them do it i don't know i mean I I
1: I, I I I i that's up to them to decide what kind of father i am
0: <laughs> but in terms of, of logan i mean he enjoys playing the game you've said that many times but but
1: that, and that's, and i think that's great that you you bring that up because that's the most important thing about logan mm. it's a game and he learned that at a very early age, that so the only way to survive was to realize the game, so you only are ever involved as far as the game is concerned, but it, you're still playing it. Whereas his kids, apart from possibly uh, Roman goes to the other extreme in terms of the game, because he's always playing games. But actually Roman is emerging, and certainly in the last, the last episode of the last series, he has emerged as somebody who had a bit of a vision who could see through something, you know, and his father notes it. He doesn't, because he he never gives praise in that way, but he notes it and he sees, oh, I see the kid made a breakthrough here, you know? So, but, uh, but Logan for Logan, it's, it's the only way you can survive. And it's true of any, I think it's true of most professions is to understand the nature of the game, the playing of it, you know? Even in my job,
0: yeah. Are there any rules that he would find his kids breaking in this game that could be too trashy or beneath the Logan family? I mean, well, the-
1: I, I, I think they've, I think they've, I think they've conjured all of those elements. Yeah. So I don't, I, don't think he's, he wouldn't know where to begin, you know, because it's, it's a, you know, it's a, what's the word? It, it, it's a pileup. You know, it's all these vehicles that have just piled into one another, and that's really what he's dealing with. I mean, his disappointment, of course, is is Shiv because Shiv is his, probably his favorite. He, he loves her deeply, but his her problem is, and the big disappointment to him is, she can't keep her mouth shut. You know, she blows it when he's trying to build up something in a very delicate way. At the wrong time with the wrong people, she, with the pierces, she blows it. And there's no way of reclaiming that in a way. And of course, she has this um, <laughs> this husband uh, who is, <laughs> uh, you know, has his, has, has his problems.
0: <laughs> no, Logan does lose. I mean, that's the thing. It seems like the kids are all. Competing, or I mean, that might not be the right word, but trying to to do break the rules and show him this is. Look at me here. Look at me singing this rap song to you. Look at me doing this deal over here, or doing that, hoping to get his approval, I guess, Mm -hmm. or at least be seen.
1: Yeah, I think he's. I think he's been. You know, he does suffer from supreme deprivation, Logan, and I think that's at the root of a lot of his being is that he's very deprived uh he's been deprived of love he's been deprived of um family in his own case you know so he's always tried to make up for that but then he's always but he's playing of the game and his ambition as a businessman has always gotten in the way and i think that that's the and I don't want to say it's tragic, but it's it's the it's the flaw. I mean, there's so many flaws in Logan. I wouldn't know where to begin. But it's one of the major flaws in Logan.
0: You yeah. were mentioning Roman. One gets the feeling, in this genius way, that it's both played and written that he really has suffered a lot, and that Logan seems particularly cure, cruel to him. Can even hit him and and um, yeah. Do you, do you get that feeling as well?
1: I, I think he's, he's bemused by uh, Roman because Roman is this constant joker. He's constantly making these jokes. So it's very, and he's like a butterfly, uh, Roman. It's very hard to pin him down because he's constantly flitting around and, and also trying not to be serious. And in a way, he's, he's actually the other idea of a game. It's like a child's game to him you know, there has to be a serious element to the game. And at the moment, you know, Roman is, you know, he suffers. He is deeply deprived. Uh, and being the youngest child, uh, no, Shiver's Shiva's the youngest child. He's the second boy. Uh, he suffers from being the youngest boy. He suffers from that. You know, he suffers from his, knowing his position and finding where his position is in the family. So, um, and also he is, it's, t- it's taken him a while to learn where he, you know, how to do what he, you know, to, to be the businessman that he needs to be. And that has begun to come through, particularly in that last episode. It was, it's quite astonishing how Logan saw through, all, uh, how Roman saw through all of that, even though he had the, uh, the banker with him. He had Danny Houston's character. He had the head of finance, which was uh, David Carl Ra- David Rashi's char- character. So they were all there. And he was, and Rashi kind of, uh, Carl observed him and observed the fact that the boy did good and he really did do good, you know? So there's a shift, you know, and everybody's capable of shifting. Uh, I think he's probably been exceptionally, I think he's been, he's tough on all his children. I don't think he kind of, he's, he doesn't, he doesn't pick on any one child. He's not sadistic in that way. I mean, his actions are, sometimes sadistic. He's
0: equally
1: he's not, sadistic. He, he's equally yeah. sadistic, yeah. Sadism is spread out.
0: Yes, <laughs> it's all gets share. No, <laughs> But I mean, a lot's been said about that last shot, that incredible Mona Lisa smile, as it's called, that you do um, at the end when Kendall, which certainly for me, I see a bit of pride in Logan there.
1: Well, I, I think finally you're right. I think the point was that, you know, he, the boy has broken through in some way but it's, but nevertheless, it's the same old, same old. So there's a kind of double there's a double humor in that. You're, oh well, he did well, didn't he? But then here we go again. It's the same old shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's 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 that element to Logan, which is what would make which makes Logan, Logan a really interesting character to play because he doesn't fall heavily on one side or the other. He he falls on that side and he said, "Oh, I see. Now we've done that. Of course, this happens. Oh yes, of course. Um, understandable. You know.
0: Well, resilience.
1: They're resilient. I mean, he, he's, he's been resilient. He's, you know, he's now, what is he? He's 81 now. So he's, he's been resilient. I mean, that's the great thing about him. He's, uh, he's um, you know, he's a pretty tough cookie. I have been asked to explain my own role in the managing of illegality at the firm and associated cover-ups and it has been suggested I would be a suitable figure to absorb the anger and concern. But the truth is that my father is a malignant presence, a bully and a liar, and he was fully personally aware of these events for many years and made efforts to hide and cover up.
0: He looms large, as we were saying, for all these kids. Your father did that. How do you mean that he was a mythic figure for you, your own father? Well, my
1: father died when I was eight. So my father was uh, always a very, he was a very sweet man. He was a very nice man. He was a very, and he was a great um, you know, he 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 was a great one for settling people, making people feel, you know, so that they and was much adored as as a as a man. I I remember him vividly, but I didn't you know, and I still I mean, I, I got a thing the other day um from a woman who's talking about and this is a woman in her now in her sixties, who's talking about how my dad helped her parents, when they were young and struggling and working class and living in a one-roomed apartment in in Charles Street. And, you know, and he gave them, he helped them. And uh, this woman said, your dad did this. My family, my father and mother just swear by your father. So that's an extraordinary legacy that my father has. uh, And I've, you know, I found it in other people as well. So my dad did a lot. My mother always used to accuse him, though, of saying, just remember, ch- charity begins at home. And um, if he was, that was, if there was a flaw, that was a flaw that perhaps he was too out there and not enough in here. But you talk to my sisters, they don't feel that at all. My sisters are them. In fact, one of my sisters, my youngest sister, after my father died, she she's now sort of born a grand Christian, <laughs> ironically, but she was very, she turned against God in a big way, you know, because of, because he was only 51, you know, he was, uh, and she was, she was very impressionable. She was, um, she was 20 when he died, you know? So it was a, uh, it was tough on the family. And it was particularly tough on my mother as well, because she hadn't real, she didn't quite realize how sensitive the man was, you know, because he didn't, he was quite private, my dad. So, uh, you know,
0: did your Absolutely. life change? Must have changed so dramatically oh, yeah. that after you died. Dramatically,
1: so- yeah, I did. it did. Because my mother had a, my mother got very ill. You know, she had a couple of very serious uh, nervous breakdowns. So she was very ill. She was out of action. But I did have my sisters, and I, I did have a. You know, my sisters have been phenomenal. My elder sister is now ninety, and uh, unfortunately, I, I was on her my way to see her birthday, her ninetieth birthday, but because of the lockdown. And I missed all that, but she's there, and she's well, and she's quite frail. I mean, her legs aren't good, but her brain seems to be working quite well. Oh, good. So, um, and, and she did a lot for me, my older sister. she, Both my sisters did. All my sisters did in one way or another. But my elder sister was, I don't say they looked after me, but what they did is they looked out for me, which is even better than me. Yes, that's
0: a good after. distinction. Somewhere you mentioned that there were 21 cinemas in Dundee, which I thought was wonderfully a lot. I mean, in, in the relatively, yeah. it's not a huge town, but when you were growing oh. up and that you yeah. were there all the time, what, was cinema an escape for you after this period?
1: It, it did become an escape, but it was initially, I was obsessed by it, even from the age of about five. And, uh, you know, and we had two cinemas opposite one another, called the, one was called the Broadway. Uh, it was in a place called Arthur Stone Terrace. So there was the Broadway and then there was the Royal. The Royal was on the other side of the, um, of the road. They were literally kitty corner to one another. And uh, what was interesting was that the, the, the cinemas were, uh, in those days, they were double features. So the evening started at 6 o'clock and went on to 11, and two movies. So get in, you would get as many as eight movies a week. Because they change programs every three days, so it, it was it was a rich scene of cinema, and I kind of embraced it all hmm. from that from this height.
0: Did do you feel you were mentioning that your sisters looked out for you and and your men, Do you do you feel that growing up with so many women around you has formed you anyway as an actor, oh, and a father?
1: Yeah. yeah. How? Yeah. Well, it's hard to say, but I've I've you know I've um. I've always been comfortable with women because they were, their, you know, their mother, their instant, the mother instincts has always been great, you know, and I've, 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 um, I've, been, you know, I've been fortunate to to have that influence, you know, and uh, I'm so grateful. I mean, I don't know what it would have been like. I mean, I had a younger, I have a, a brother who's no longer with us, he sadly passed away. He was eight years older than me, and uh, he was particularly, he was only, six, He was very young when my father died. He was, um, yeah, he was 16, 15, Mm -hmm. just coming up to being 16, I think.
0: That's a hard age to lose a parent. It was, Mm
1: -hmm. I think in many ways I realized in later life that it was much tougher on him than it was on me because I had the means of expressing myself. My brother, well, he was quite a character, but he lived in a fantasy world, which was great. You know, he was constantly on the run from the, everything was like a Western from my brother, which was quite funny. I mean, he was a very, very, very funny man, very funny man, and and very dear man, again, had a lot of my dad in him, a lot of his generosity. But he, I think he was very, what's the word, he was very uh, hurt by the loss of his father and very, and I think he suffered a great deal, more than he would ever admit, I think.
0: Well, it's interesting to see how, you know, the different siblings, both in the show and your life, and how everyone's impacted. I want to go back. You were mentioning my absolute favorite episode and my husband as well who's a screenwriter who we've gone back to so many times and that's the Turnhaven episode I think that's an absolute miracle of screenwriting (laughs) and how you film that show and or or that episode and how all the characters relationships come to a head Um, can you tell me a little bit about filming that dinner scene with the pierces
1: yeah, I think, I think Mark, Mark Mylar, who's uh, one of our directors, who's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I mean, he did the classic, the last episode of the eighth series, you know, the, the, the last episode of uh, the second series, The Thing on the Boat. Right. And I think he did, yeah, I think he shot that. I, 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 I think it was uh, just, he, we do do the scenes like little plays. We do shoot them. Uh, you know, we just shoot them as a set piece. And we had, we use a lot of cameras. We use usually, certainly two, if not three operators, mainly two, but we, so we shoot and we shoot, we take the scenes and then we do one pass one way, one pass another way, and then we mix it up. But the structure of the scene remains the same. And of course, by the time, we've done the scene two or three times. We, it's a structure is emerging, which makes the filming of it that much easier and that much more how you can select what you want. And Mark is Mark Mylord, He's, he's a wonderful director and very, very rigorous, very hardworking. And uh, certainly the Pierce's was, it, it, because we were in this incredible location, this house, this incredibly beautiful house on Long Island, which is on a little island off Long Island. And uh, we were we were filming there, and it, it, and the great cast with Sherry Jones as the you know the, the major uh, was absolutely wonderful, and of course um, the fantastic Holly Hunter, so all of that all those elements coming together and her position in the show, um, Holly's position where she's shifting ground and she's moving you know. She's seeing, and and his desire to buy that company, and his uh, his kind of look, you know, he he's not tolerant of the of the pierces because he feels they're sort of become self-made Brahmins, you know, they're sort of very posh and they've they've done that and they they've allowed they've they've lived off that, you know. Both intellectually uh, and morally, and he found Logan finds all that highly questionable. He he really doesn't. It, he's uneasy with all of that. So being at the being at the Pierce household because he's determined to get the company is is puts an enormous pressure on him that then comes out in the Argistes episode later on when we go up to and everything's falling apart the the the, the cruises and all that. So it's it, it, it was it was quite an interesting episode from that point of view because he, he was going into a world a world that he uh, Logan would avoid at all costs. But the reality is, if you want to acquire uh, that uh, station that they have and their their whole media profile, then you have to embrace it. Bagging Pierce is the key to our proxy defense. They're inquiring about your moral character. Hence this weekend. My worry
0: is that Kendall may come across as too cool and likable. Welcome to Turnhaven, our city on the hill.
1: Wow, I like this dad. Why couldn't this dad be dead?
0: Any thought given to whom you might hand over the keys? Just whisper it in my ear.
1: Watching you people melt down is the most satisfying activity we aim to please.
0: And also here you see everyone from Shiv to her husband everyone sort of falling apart around the table in different ways um, trying to, trying to save this and also one thing that one sees here that I'm interested in is Logan's relationship to his wife.
1: Yeah. Well that that, that becomes that you know becomes under because she's you know she's been looking at things quite a while now. And her cynicism has sort of grown and and he finds it he finds that distressing. He finds his wife's cynicism distressing. Because he you know, the thing about his relationship with Marsha was that she's always been reliable. You know, there's something about her she's like she's been a very fixed kind of access for him. And now that, that is going. And of course she's jealous because of these other women coming into play. And, and, you know, and it's a sort of needless jealousy because all his and everybody you know, goes on about when, the, when we go to, when we first go off to Scotland and, and, and everybody thinks that he's having this affair, which he isn't. With, with Holly. Huh? Yeah. With Holly. He's not. I mean, he's just a business. there a very strong business relationship. You know, he admires her and he hasn't got any time for that at the moment. I mean, uh, I, I think he's put a lot of that on hold. Uh, but at this particular point, he has no time for it. So he's lost her trust and he feels he's lost it needlessly. So, and it's becoming, its he can feel the erosion that's been happening, you know, and he doesn't know what he can do about it.
0: That is, she's being unfair, which is, I think it's so interesting because that's one of the only times one sees him feeling a bit of a victim.
1: Yeah. I think, no, no, but, but the, the one thing is, is, you know, he could be a bachelor, he could be, not have a, a relationship, but I think he has the need for something uh, that is centrifugal to his life. And, of course, that's become shaky, and that, that really affects him quite badly. But he's, he's slowly lost, you know, because at the most important time, she's not been there, you know, like on the boat when he could have really, you know, he keeps saying, is she here? Is she arriving? And he keeps turning in bed. Is she there? And she's not. So he feels very alone, you know, and she nursed him through his illness. So he does feel that somehow or other he's, their relationship has become strained in a way that he never, he doesn't know why it's happened.
0: Well, I'm looking forward. I hope Jesse and Logan write more. I'm looking forward to her backstory. She's, she's one of those characters that, they're slowly revealing, and I have this feeling yeah, that exactly. it's an interesting character behind that. No, it's
1: a, it's a very interesting character. And, and, it's, and of course, one of the things one has to do, I mean, I don't have that problem because Logan is so clearly in the center force of the, the show. But it is hard for the others sometimes to know where they're going, you know, to know what they're going to be doing because it's, it's, it's again, because it's organic and it follows the rules of organic life. Things take place you know, you need a lot of trust as an actor to feel that you can do I mean, that's the thing I learned when I worked with David Milch because my character with David Milch, I'd sometimes not work for weeks, but I just felt that once one was involved with that show, you know, because it was a great show, Deadwood, but you had to really uh, put a lot of stuff on hold in order to commit to the show, you know, and it was very, very important that you didn't worry about your career. I didn't worry about, am I doing the right thing? You didn't, you know, because it, you know, the, the thing was in the job and it yielded and eventually it yielded such great dividends. It was tragic that we didn't go on to a, a, third, a third series with that. That was tragic. But that, you know, that was the joy of that is is the level of commitment you can give to something. And I think it's important to be able to give that commitment. Otherwise you're, you know, you're, you're, you're looking for the me. And the me, you know, and this is interesting about being an actor. That, that the me is, is something that is necessary. It's necessary to have a certain amount of vanity. It's necessary to have a certain amount of ego. But they're like, <laughs> they're like wild horses. You've got to really tame them and keep them well under control. Otherwise, it can carry you away and it can take you off beam. It can take you off course needlessly. And I've seen it. I've, I've watched actors kind of do, you know, lose heart because they felt that they're not supported in some way. And I've just said, well, you're working. You've got a job.
0: And not, you just, mean, like, go into something, anything yeah. from like alcohol to...
1: Well, it's not even It's not even as extreme as that. It's just the fact that they, you know, what we do in our business, and it's a, it's a thing that that can never be underestimated is that we create these communities. There is a series of communities that you then have to commit to. Mm-hmm. Once you're in a community, you've got to commit to it, or it ceases to be a community. And that's what is great about our show, is that we really have a strong community.
0: Yeah, promise me you'll keep Jeremy under so that Your community.
1: Jeremy's got no, I mean, the only, the only. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I know. But the only dilemma Jeremy has is with Jeremy. We don't have that dilemma because we know him. We know him well. So we, we can, we can anticipate so much of what's going on. Even poor he can.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's good. It seems to me that you've taken a lot of roles that, that are difficult because not everything is revealed. Logan, Hannibal Lecter, but the one thing you've always done is found that one characteristic that... I think is the memorable portrayal of that whole, I'm thinking of Robert McKee in in Spike Jones adaptation. I I went to see McKee's three-day seminar. And the one thing that that struck me the most was from the moment he walked out, he hated us. (laughs) I mean, he was like, you all suck. Why are you here? You don't, I mean, that was his persona. When I saw your portrayal of him, I just fell down laughing because you had captured that exact feeling and it well, scared I, <laughs> me again. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, but I did do, I had, had done, my wife and I both had done Robert's workshop in Glasgow. So I kind of knew Robert. And Robert actually, he, he, I mean, it was him that, you know, a lot of other people suggested for that role, but Robert was very loyal and said, there's only one guy who can play this part. You know, the only one guy I would really like to play that part. And that was me. And I was... Blast. Yes. Sir, what if a writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens where people don't change, they don't have any epiphanies, they struggle and are frustrated and nothing is resolved. More a reflection of the real world. The real world? Yes sir. The real fucking world. First of all, you write a screenplay without conflict or crisis, you'll bore your audience to tears. Secondly, Nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your fucking mind? People are murdered every day. There's genocide, war, corruption. Every fucking day, somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Every fucking day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. People find love. People lose it. For Christ's sake, a child watches a mother beaten to death on the steps of a church someone goes hungry somebody else betrays his best friend for a woman if you can't find that stuff in life then you my friend don't know crap about life and why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie i don't have any use for it i don't have any bloody use for it okay thanks but the thing about Robert is that he is, I, I I adore Robert because he's a soldier. He's a fighter. and he's And he's fighting along the lines of the discipline of the work. And that's what his great quality is. And he's very vulnerable, incredibly vulnerable. I mean, I remember there was a review of a film which he didn't even write. And the guy had written a review where he kind of, said this is all Robert McKee's fault this and he was you know he was oh, going on about that and Robert you know Robert got in touch with me and he was genuinely upset he said what do I do I said well write to the guy I said talk to him I said it's, this is a ridiculous review I said because you know how can he blame you he said yeah but it's just the fact that I've worked and trained and taught so many people that I'm seen. I said well that's that's the risk you take, Robert. That's the nature of who you are. I said, but who you are is pretty incredible. And, uh, you, know, you know, there's no question that uh, your passion is, you know, you know you, there's no doubt about your passion. I said, but you just have to do it because it's also, you know, you're, it's a job too. You're just, this is your job and you have to commit to your job. And you commit to it wholeheartedly and, and you believe it. You know, it's not as if you're telling lies. You believe it. You believe in structure. You believe in storytelling. You believe in all those things that you talk so brilliantly about. Your know, when you do the Casablanca thing at the end of the, the course. Right, right. So uh, you know, but it, but it's also very lonely being Robert in that situation. You know, because mm-hmm. it's because he was the first who really started a role.
0: But is there any truth to to the fact that you like you enjoy a role that? You don't know everything off the page. No, my,
1: That's it's, our... my, it's my rule. My rule about doing it is that there always has to be a mystery. Mm-hmm. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on and that you don't reveal, you know, that you don't put everything on the table. Uh, and uh, it, it's something that in, you learn in film much more in the theatre, uh, the, the, the theatre's a different animal, but then actually it pays off in the theatre as well, that you don't quite know who that person is, and that's what the evening's about. It's about discovering the person, not about the person coming in and hit you in the face. And I think you, you quoted Hannibal Lecter. You see, I think Hannibal Lecter is a very, very good example. Let, you know, Tony Hopkins was, there's no question, he's a brilliant, I mean, the man has so much talent, that's you know, it's overwhelming. you know, he's... <laughs> He can make music, he can paint, he can do everything. He's incredible. And he's a dear, sweet, sweet man. Um, And he was wonderful. I thought he was wonderful. But it was a very, again, a very theatrical performance, very good. And it worked. It certainly worked with the audience. You know, because I was sent the original proofs of um, Silence of the Lambs. And when I read it, I said, oh, he still maintained that we don't quite know who he is. We still don't know who he is. And then when they went on, and because it became a franchise, they started to expose who he was. And I think it was detrimental to the character. Because I think that the strength of playing Hannibal Lecter is that guy is a mystery. And he's scary because you don't know where he's coming from. And I think that's key, that's absolutely key. Um, and, I, and I believe it for most roles. That that's your job, is not to reveal everything. And because you, you've got to allow the audience to do their work, their thing, the thing that makes them sit forward in the street rather than sits back. So they're always intrigued by the, the notion of who is this person? Where is she going? What is she doing? What does she want? What does he want? What? You've got to do that. And so they, you know, mystery is very, very important in our job.
0: I mean, is Logan completely revealed to you and you're giving us little tastes or is, well, are I mean, you?
1: I, 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 Logan reveals himself. I mean, you know, it, it's it's really weird because, I mean, initially I was playing somebody who was born in Quebec, Canada for right. nine episodes. And then finally they changed it to Dundee, Scotland, which is where I'm from. And then I went, well, 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 you know, I was kind of slightly wobbly about that, what was going on. And then I realized what was going on was he was placing him, in a kind of locale, which was pretty uh, deprived, shall we say. And so you see somebody coming out of a deprived locale and with all the the unrevealed problems with his sister, with his mom, with his brother, and then going to this uncle who was abusive. So we, we, there's a picture, there's a background picture there. It's, it's still, still foggy, you know, it's still sort of, uh, yeah, it's still foggy. But it's coming through slowly, and uh, that's the that's the joy. So that you you embrace that, and then you realize that you start to, and and this is what's so strong about the writers. They have a way of understanding how we think, and so they write for us. Um, so that I've never quarrelled with anything that's been written because I've always it's always enhanced what I felt. The, the area I wanted to work in. It's always enhanced that area. You
0: know. But that seems particularly strong with Succession because you can see that in all the characters, how they've developed. I mean, all how all the actors and, and how, you know, Jeremy's perfect for that and perfect for that and how the writers seem to have just... Caught on to how you guys, yeah. you know, you're working. And I mean, no other, no other comparisons. But I mean, both you and Logan are self-made men from yeah. Dundee. I yeah. mean, there's a certain amount of knowledge that you bring. Well, there is them.
1: a certain amount. of him. He's uh, somebody. He's my evil twin. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's fun to be able to play one. I'd love to do be my evil twin once in a while. But do people see you as Logan? I mean, now today, if you meet
1: people, are, people are naturally uh, apprehensive, but then within about two or three minutes, they realize that. You know, it's a different animal altogether. Yeah.
0: They don't ask you to say fuck off for things.
1: Oh, like they that. ask me to say fuck off all the time. You know, I'm <laughs> constantly, I have people standing, you know, when I was doing, I was just playing Lyndon Johnson just there before Christmas at the Lincoln Center in New York. And, and uh, people would come after the show and uh, with the young, young people, boyfriend, girlfriend, and they'd stand there and they'd say, and they would hold up their selfies and say, Can you tell us to fuck off? <laughs> and I would go fuck off, you know. So, I, so it was, and it's wonderful because it is actually something that you, you feel, so you can do it. You really
0: <laughs> do want them to fuck off in you character.
1: Genuinely, genuinely want them to fuck off. You know, I mean, I'm, the classic incident was going to a, an evening of Me Too at uh, the launching of a Ronan Farrow, the Ronan Farrow book that uh, my friend uh, Rosanne Arquette had arranged at her in her lovely house and there was a lot of people there and I when I came towards the end and it was a great really good evening and he was uh, Ronan was being you know particularly good and particularly observant about the whole me too thing so I was there and um, then the thing finished and I was just as I was leaving, I was surrounded by all these women you know saying and a couple of them just said could I video you telling me to fuck off and, I, and I'm going we, this is a Me Too evening. Um, is this really appropriate for a Me Too evening? I'm, um, you know, anyway. You well, go. that
0: could have been very misconstrued had it gone viral.
1: <laughs> exactly. Brian
0: exactly. Cox said a Me Too meaning telling women to fuck off.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
0: Tell me about season three. Are you raring to go? Is how do you guys know anything about?
1: we just have to find the conditions, you know, we've really got to get the conditions right. And, uh, um, and it's, it's tricky, you know, because we've got a lot on, you know, we've got a lot on, uh, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of management has to happen. And, you know, they're talking about various timeframes uh, and the time frame. Uh, the problem is living in this country and the stupidity of people with their masks and the fact that things are rising. I mean, New York's in a very good state at the moment and yeah. almost made some really good headway with that. Um, and up here where I am is is really very healthy, considerably, you know, considering it's quite healthy. But, um, so we have to be, and we have to, you know, we have to acknowledge tests, we have to acknowledge social distancing. There's a lot of stuff we have to do in order to go out. And I think that I sure will happen. It will not happen immediately. Um, probably towards the end of the year, it will begin to happen. And uh, but we're also watching to see other people are rushing to make things happen. So um, sometimes a little foolhardy. So we're gonna. It's going to be interesting to watch that those scenarios present themselves, which will affect our scenario.
0: Have you been able to read any scripts? Because I know they've been writing. No, for a
1: while. I, I, I haven't. I know what it's all about. I know what's going to happen, but uh, I can't tell you, because I'm sworn to secrecy. But um, in fact, I had this meeting with Jesse literally the day before lockdown. In I was in London. I was directing a play with my wife, and. Uh, we, I, my wife had she'd gone back because she wanted to get back quickly so I was and I still had a couple of things to do and I had a meeting with Je- Jesse and then he said um he said so do you want to know about next season I said no no you've never told me about next season no 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 he said oh I think it's all right I think I can tell you so he told me and it's jolly exciting
0: Ah, oh, <laughs> <I see>. say. <laughs> So that what I can deduce is that if he told you this before the lockdown, it means you might not be featuring the pandemic on the show. or uh, you- <laughs>
1: Well, this is a this is a question that we have to address and see what I mean, Jesse's got very clear ideas on that. So we, we you know, it's, it's it's a debate, you know, so we're still in that's still in a an amorphous way you know
0: right. my theory is that logan would be fine in quarantine well,
1: my theory is that logan if somebody offered logan a mask he'd just don't the fuck off of course <laughs>
0: <laughs> well mr gross thank you um the human experiment felt a little bit better talking to you i have to say thank you so All much right. for this time and and for the show Yeah. Thank you so much to Brian Cox. I'm so looking forward to the Emmy nominations coming up later this month. I have great expectations for Brian Cox and the rest of the Succession crew. Succession is, of course, on HBO and Season 3. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. Thank you so much for joining us. Subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential, rate, review, and send me your thoughts. I'm Christina Biro on Twitter. Stay safe and see you next time.